0: I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot...
2: Good afternoon, everybody. Earlier today, I was briefed by my Homeland Security team on the events in Boston. We're continuing to monitor and respond uh, to the situation as it unfolds, and I've directed the full resources of the federal government to help state and local authorities protect our people, increase security around the United States as necessary, and investigate what happened. The American people will say a prayer for Boston tonight, and Michelle and I send our deepest thoughts and prayers to the families of the victims in the wake of this senseless loss. We don't yet have all the answers, but we do know that multiple people have been wounded, some gravely, in explosions at the Boston Marathon. On days like this, there are no Republicans or Democrats. We are Americans united in concern for our fellow citizens. We still do not know who did this or why, and people shouldn't jump to conclusions before we have all the facts. But make no mistake, We will get to the bottom of this, and we will find out who did this, we'll find out why they did this. Thank you very much. I remember this whomping noise, and smoke, and flashes of yellow and orange, and falling backwards slowly, and then I blacked out for a few seconds. I started to feel myself slipping, and I, I touched down at my legs because I wanted to understand what was going on and I reached down to my left leg and I just felt flesh and
1: it was warm and I pulled my hand up and it was covered in blood. Um,
2: So I knew that something was really bad. I was definitely angry. I didn't really understand why it had happened, why they picked such a happy day. It had altered my life
3: so much so quickly. Within a second, my life changed in a
0: way that I never thought that it would.
3: Welcome to "I Can Murder" a podcast series eight, episode fifteen. And sitting across from me <laughs> is the dangerously daft, the deliriously doddery, the dazed and dizzy dogger Ben Carter. Oh,
4: I was, I was kind of leaning on delicious, then, or hoping delicious would be in there. How, how are you doing? You're all right.
3: No, doddery, dogger, dizzy, daft. Uh, that kind of delightful, I mean, that... delicious. Mm. No, that didn't come up in the. The, brains, the little brainstorm I had earlier, I was like, what, what, what works, what works? Sir? But uh, <laughs> how are you doing, Ben?
4: Yeah, doing really well, thank you. Coming to the end of this little uh, coughing uh, coughing season that I'm in, uh, so hopefully got rid of that for now. But doing really well, glad to be here, back with a, a huge case. Um, but yeah, uh, excited to dive into this one. How, how are you, a producer Dan?
0: Hello, boys. Welcome back. Yeah, very good. It's like bloody summer again, isn't it, outside? It's warm. Mm. Got a sweat on the old brow going on. <laughs> I'm fine, thanks. We hope everybody enjoyed last week's episode, Levi
3: Belfield. Um, I was back in Blighty, but we are going far, far away to one of Dan's favourite cities in the world. It's up there.
0: Yeah, certainly, yes. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Boston.
0: <laughs> I mean, you, you like it enough to name your studio. After it. Yeah, the studio is named Boston Sound, if you didn't know that already, listener. Um, uh, my uncle resides over there and has done for the past 30 years as a, he's a bloody scientist. Um, wow. So uh, yeah, as a, as a family, we often visited over the old pond um, and I've grown to bloody love it. It's a wonderful place.
3: And now you love ponds as well, don't you? Yep.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
3: <laughs> don't feel like we're gelling today, do you?
4: Yeah, Boston. Heard some, some really good things. Would love to go. Um, just, More just than for a the feeling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But just for the uh, the old Boston cream donut. It looks delicious. Uh,
3: so sign me up. But anyway, today's case uh, is, of course, the Boston Marathon Omens. Also known as the case of Johar and Tamerlan Tsarnaev, the murder of Sean Collier, the Watertown shootout, the Tsarnaev brothers' attacks. Um, and Ben, you gave a little clue last week.
4: Did, yeah. I uh, Sort of felt a bit inappropriate with this one but I think we managed to sort of get there in the end tell Mark Wahlberg to give us Snickers to that shit comedian um, which you know Mark Wahlberg you've got Boston uh, Snickers also known as Marathon and then uh, shit comedian it was known as Marathon it was also known as Oh, uh, and then shit comedian but bombing uh, or tanking uh, but I think they bombed, don't they rather than tank bad
3: comedians yeah, 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 yeah. both probably what, this clue, or comedians? Comedians. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Sure. Um, so, I'd be interested to know if anyone did get it from that. Uh, a lot of people did get the Levi Belfield.
4: Mm. did. Yeah. I
3: think that was one of the better ones. Um, oh. But yes, Dan, if you wouldn't mind setting the scene for this week's case.
0: Shortly before 3pm on April 15th, 2013, a series of atrocious events took place that would forever leave a mark on both the city of Boston and the United States as a whole. Just as a number of runners were approaching the finish line of the 2013 Boston Marathon, two pressure cooker bombs exploded amongst the packed crowds of the sidewalk, resulting in the deaths of three people, the infliction of serious injuries to over 280 people, and the scenes of pandemonium, the likes of which the city had never seen. This act of terrorism, carried out by brothers Johar and Tamerlan Sanaev, shocked the world and led to a huge manhunt, which resulted in the additional murder of a police officer. The subsequent capture, trial and conviction of one of the perpetrators underscored the sheer resilience of the Bostonians and the determination to bring those responsible to justice. 10 years on from this harrowing ordeal, the impact is no less significant with numerous conspiracy theories being born and the city of Boston memorializing those that were so cruelly lost.
4: So there you go. I mean, I think my memories of this case are, and I don't know if I'm misremembering it at all, but I remember watching the Sky News coverage of the manhunt. And I'm sure, and I, I look back on it now thinking, surely they didn't show this live. But I remember the sort of infrared footage of the one of the perpetrators hiding. Um, but I'm sure that wouldn't have been broadcasted live. I'm, I'm sure I'm now just misremembering it.
3: I, just, I remember it as well. Um mm. in my memory he was hiding a different thing than he turned out he was hiding in. But uh, I could be
4: misremembering. But yeah, I think I think similar to maybe nine eleven, I can't remember the exact timings, but I feel like I was in school the moment that the first event took place and then got home from school my parents had it on the news and that's when I either am misremembering the manhunt element or but i remember all that sort of night vision and infrared footage of uh the suspect hiding um but yeah i just didn't know why would they broadcast that live if i unless i am misremembering it which i very well could be
3: but yeah i remember the infrared stuff i i don't think that's anything particularly graphic in terms of them showing it because he does, but I do remember it, but perhaps we saw it a day after or something, it actually occurred. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, watching back and doing the research for this case, there was a lot of like bits I knew already about, which I didn't realize I'd already seen, and people, and I recognized obviously the perpetrators and whatnot. But yeah, uh, this one is, even though it is f- over the pond, it is one that also has elements of being close to home. As you mentioned before, Dan um, has links to Boston. And Dan, you've got a little bit more of
0: a connection to this one. Yeah, very close to home, really. It's crazy to think this was 10 years ago now. Um, but yeah, as it was happening, my sister and my uncle were actually running the marathon. Um, and they were, if I remember correctly, they were one mile from the finish line when the bombs went off. So you can imagine the news as it broke and i don't think i might be wrong in this but i don't think the runners can carry mobile phones or they kind of hand them into like a locker or something so obviously getting through to jess uh, my sister and john my uncle um it's quite a scary you know few hours to hear any sort of news yeah. and you know they were fine luckily um but it was uh, quite a traumatic experience for them yeah no, i didn't even didn't even
3: know that dan but yeah, that I can imagine, yeah. I mean, I, from reports as well, people at the race are unable to contact people even if they did have phones because obviously everyone's using their phones and the signals and whatnot. Yeah. Um, yeah, that sounds absolutely terrifying. Um, my cousin, shout out to, to my cousin Kevin who, who listens to the podcast, big fan of the podcast. He he was living in Boston at the time and he recalls um, when everyone was locked here, not allowed to go out and it was very scary and very tense and it was... Uh, it, the, whole, the whole city being locked down... Um, which I know obviously we've lived through the, the pandemics we know what that kind of feels a little bit like now but back then it's just so how two people can literally shut down a whole um city like that um after causing so much harm to, to people is, is truly terrifying uh but yes uh, we will um get into today's case um for starting with a quote from boston globe reporter david Filipov.
0: we're never going to in any of this try to justify what they did by saying they had a rough time with their lives But these two people were not born marathon bombers, they became them.
4: And so what we're going to do in this week's episode is, is find out exactly how they became uh, the Boston Marathon Bombers. Uh, we're going to review their life stories. There's a lot more to the, the life of Tamerlan, who, in most people's opinion, is the uh, the ringleader for the attacks and, and also, obviously, the older brother of the two. Um, and he's also been linked with a series of other crimes that haven't yet been brought to a conclusion. So uh, a little disclaimer here, as with both of the early lives, um, the family did relocate or were forced to relocate a lot to very different parts of Russian districts or regions or republics or states at the time, so we've tried to make that as clear and as simple as possible, so you will hear a few interesting city names, uh, which obviously we apologise in advance for if there are any heavy mispronunciations. Tamilan Anzorovich Sanaev was born on the 21st of October 1986 in the city of Alista, Russia, which at the time was part of the Kalmyk Autonomous Soviet Socialist Republic. With the Sanaev family later raising him in the city of Kamalkia. Tamalam was one of four children born to Anzor and Zubaida Sanaev, with the couple having two girls, Bella and Amina, and two boys. The other boy born to the couple was Tamalan's younger brother, Johar, who we'll talk about in more detail shortly. His family belonged to the Chechen ethnic group, which has a complex history and a strong sense of cultural identity. The Sarnaev family went through a great deal of uprooting during and prior to Tamarlan’s birth, with the family living in multiple locations, sometimes by choice and other times by force. Two decades before Tamalin was born, the couple were forcibly moved from their home in Chechnya to live in the Soviet Republic of Kyrgyzstan. This was as a result of the fallout and aftermath of World War II. So, this is important to note as it meant that essentially their children would not be born on Chechenian soil, which, when the family would later relocate to America, did cause some conflict with other um, uh, Chechnians that had immigrated to America that were born there. So, it did cause them to feel slightly ostracized, uh, especially their children to feel slightly ostracized when living in America. Tamilan's
3: father, Anzor, was a native Chechen, whilst his mother, Zubidat, was an Avar. The family were considered very much working class, with Ansel working as a mechanic and Zubadat working as a beautician. The parents would regularly struggle to maintain employment due to the constant upheaval and would on numerous occasions sign up to receive welfare benefits from the state. With other family members stating that their lives were quote, in constant transition for a full decade. In the summer of 1993 when Tamalem was five years old, his parents had their second baby boy, they named him Yohar. Having to this point grown up with only sisters, Tamerlan absolutely adored his younger brother, spending all of his time with him from the moment he was born. The pair formed an exceptionally close bond as a result, something that would stay with them for the rest of their lives. In order to try and keep money coming in for the family of six, Anzor would work several different roles, while Zubatat ended up being dismissed from her role as a cosmetologist due to the company that she worked for asking her to serve male customers. She would also then spend the rest of her time caring for and raising her children, whilst also intermittently homeschooling them each time they had to relocate. The family finally settled in the city of Tokmok, Kyrgyzstan in the late 90s, which for the first time in his life gave Tamerlan some sense of stability. After several years in Tokmok, the family once again relocated in 2001. This time they returned to Russia for better work opportunities in the city of Makachkala, Dagestan. Dagestan was known for its instability with conflicts and tensions stemming from ethnic and political issues. Racial and religious prejudice, as well as high tensions and violence, were very much an everyday part of life for the young man. These circumstances would eventually impact Tamlan's worldview.
4: The following year, Tamlan's parents, as well as his younger brother Johar, obtained a 90-day tourist visa and travelled to America, leaving 16-year-old Tamlan in the care of his uncle. It is unclear if Tamlan was aware of what happens next or if he only found out later down the line. But, basically, once the rest of the family had arrived in America, his father Anzor immediately located immigration officials with whom he applied for asylum, explaining that he and his family were in great danger back in Dagestan due to the fact that he was a native Chechenian. Some people have speculated that he intentionally moved his family to Dagestan in order to make his claim for asylum seem more urgent and that would go through the following year. So yeah, that was an interesting note to make. It's not clear exactly if Tamerlan knew that his parents were going to make the claim for asylum when they arrived or whether he was completely aware of this but whatever the result is, he was left alone, uh, well, living with his uncle, uh, for two years at just the age of 16. In late 2002, both the parents were granted asylum, and they then filed for asylum for their four children, which was also later granted after several months. The whole family eventually settled in a small terraced house in Cambridge, Massachusetts, number 410 Norfolk Street. And yeah, I had a quick look at pictures online. It actually looks like a a fairly nice house. It is quite small but uh, particularly for a family of six. But yeah, it looks like a really nice part of Boston and was certainly a drastic change to what the family had been used to. The Sanayev children were each granted derivative asylum status. So once granted asylum, both parents uh, applied to take up employment and began attending English classes within the community. So the father Anzor took up work as a, quote, backyard mechanic. And I just—I did wonder what that was, which, according to Google, is someone who works on and fixes cars from their own property, often called a shade tree mechanic, uh, an amateur mechanic, or one with very little training. I thought some people might call me a backyard podcaster,
3: <laughs> uh, or uh, you could be a shade tree podcaster.
4: Yeah. Welcome to the Shade Tree Podcast with Ben Carter, where he's constantly out of his depth. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck it out. Meanwhile, Zubidat struggled to adapt to Western society and also struggled to obtain any kind of consistent employment as a result. She also struggled to form any kind of friendship groups with other Russian and Chechen immigrants in the community allegedly ostracizing the family. And again, yeah, there's there's inner conflict there um, and it made their children also feel ostracized as a result. But it seems that part of the family settled really well in America and the other half didn't settle that well at all.
3: In 2003, now aged 17, and after living alone with his uncle for two years, Tamlem arrived in America and was reunited with the rest of his family. He had received his visa after being taken to the embassy in Turkey by his uncle, where he then got on a flight to Boston. Upon arrival in America, Tamlem, who, like his siblings, could speak fluent English, enrolled in Cambridge Ringe and Latin Public High School. It is alleged that he was quick to make friends and was regarded as a confident and intelligent student, who had little issue in adjusting to his new environment. This has been argued, though, as Tamilan and his family had arrived in America at arguably its most heightened cultural, religious and racial divide, with tensions particularly towards Eastern immigrants at a boiling point as a result of the 9-11 attacks on America. Larry Aronson, a former teacher at Cambridge Ringe and Latin, described Tamerlan as follows.
0: If someone were to ask me what the kid was like, I would say he had a heart of gold. He was as gracious as possible. He came from a family of model immigrants. He was a normal American kid.
3: At high school, Tamlam showed a keen interest in a range of different sports, Wanted to try baseball, basketball and American football, but formed a particular passion for boxing. He became known for his skills in the ring and even began to aspire to represent the United States in the Olympics. However, it is also during this period that reports suggest that he started to display signs of early radicalization, including expressing extremist
4: religious beliefs, sympathising with detained terrorists and applauding the perpetrators of the 9-11 attacks. In 2006, after finishing high school, Tamilan applied for the University of Massachusetts, Boston, but he was rejected. And with this rejection, he somehow seemed to begin to reject the American dream he had in mind. So he instead attended Bunker Hill Community College in Boston part-time, but struggled academically and seemed to become more socially reclusive. So instead of uh, full-time education, he spent his spare time focusing on his boxing career, training rigorously, and competing in various matches. Eventually, despite having once held dreams of becoming a mechanic and an accountant, Tamerlan dropped out of education altogether. And despite his athletic aspirations and desires to be an Olympic boxer, he began to delve deeper into his religious extremism which pulled him from his training and raised concerns among the few friends and family who knew him and over the next few years a scattered series of red flags would be raised regarding Tamilan. on his page on uh, basically this is the russian language version of facebook uh, so i might butcher the pronunciation but i've covered myself there vikontakte pardon vikontakte
3: why is that, why sound like a Yorkshire accent? I did
4: sound a bit Yorkshire, yeah. Go Sorry, up to Vikontakte. <laughs> Get me your Facebooks. Vikontakte. Is that a bit more Russian? Hmm. Chesht. Vikontakte. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck's sake. So yeah, basically, the Russian language version of Facebook, Tamerlan listed career and money as his principal interests and motivations for life. He posted videos of himself playing the piano, playing the violin, and performing difficult gymnastic stands and flips. He also... (laughs) And flips.
3: Here's a video of me doing difficult (laughs) gymnastic stands and flips.
4: He also listed his favourite song as Hey Sexy Lady by Shaggy, and he listed that he could fluently speak three different languages. But when asked for his world view, he answered with one word, Islam. And he had recently posted links to his page that included jihadist material, uh, which was in plain view for all of his friends and family to see. So yeah, lots of levels to this individual. Never heard Hey Sexy Lady by Shaggy. I haven't. I haven't. Maybe we'll play it afterwards. After the episode, not on the episode. Jesus. Yeah, let me know how it is. Do you not want to listen together? Nah, things on, mate. Lots of things
3: to do. (laughs) Might go practice my gymnastic stands and flips.
4: In 2007, the Sanayev family were granted legal permanent residence in America, meaning that Tamerlan now had citizenship for Kyrgyzstan, Russia and America. And despite this, he still seemed to harbour a great deal of resentment towards his new home country and struggled with the idea of his sisters becoming westernised. His youngest sister, Bella, had been dating a Brazilian-American boy for two years, not long after the family had arrived in the country, but she had kept it secret from her family. And when she announced it at a family dinner, Tamerlan absolutely hated the idea of his sister being with a non-Muslim. And as a result, Tamerlan approached the boy, who was many, many years younger than him, and struck him in the face several times, knocking him unconscious.
3: In 2008, Tamerlan immersed himself more and more in the online world of extremism. Comparisons can be made to the behaviour we saw with Dylan Roof in our episode a few weeks ago, but obviously at a far different end of the spectrum. He would read about American war crimes, rising crime rates against Muslims and other historical atrocities against the Arab world. Tamilan became a devout Muslim. Despite his family's initial predominantly Buddhist background, he stopped drinking and stopped smoking. He began to attend the Islamic Society of Boston Mosque, which was located near his home in Cambridge. This mosque in particular has drawn criticism for being anti-Western by the APT, a Boston-based group known as Americans for Peace and Tolerance, who say the following about the mosque.
0: This mosque has a curriculum that radicalises people. Other people have been radicalised there. The mosque and the leaders within it promote a brand of Islamic thought that encourages grievances against the West, a distrust of law enforcement and opposition to Western forms of government, dress and social values. They advocate for treating gays as criminals, they say husbands should sometimes beat their wives, and calls on Allah, their God, to kill Zionists and Jews.
3: Later that same year, age 22, Tamerlan's other sister, Amina, who had married an American and moved to the other side of the country with him, called her brother to say that her new husband had been beating her and cheating on her. As a result, Tamerlan got on a flight to Belen in Washington, where he then made his way up to the couple's house and, quote, straightened up the brains of his new brother-in-law. An important note to make is that Tamerlan was a very imposing figure and a well-regarded boxer who had won numerous trophies and awards to this point.
4: Straightening up the brains.
3: Mmm. You did one of them, didn't you? Yeah. I'll
4: coach. slap on back. I'll slap for your hair and s. <laughs> in an interview with The Comment, which is a student magazine for the Boston University College of Communication, Tamerlan took part in a series of questions which resulted in a photo essay being produced of him. And the article focused on his experiences of America having arrived as an asylum seeker, and his dreams of one day representing America as a boxer at the Olympics. In the interview, Tamerlan said,
0: I am working towards becoming a naturalized citizen of the United States in time to be selected for the boxing team. I would much rather compete for the United States than for Russia. I do not drink or smoke or take drugs because God says not to. But there are no values anymore. People can't control themselves.
4: So, yeah, I mean, a note worth mentioning is that whilst he did have quite a few accolades as a boxer and clearly had big goals and, and, and dreams to become, you know, represent uh, America at the Olympics, a pro super middleweight boxer by the name of Edwin Rodriguez, who had uh, sparred with Tamerlan, uh, did not hold him in quite such high regard um, as the, the other kind of articles that you read about this guy. And he put this down to a combination of attitude and physical condition. And he made the following remark. It's
0: a strange feeling to know I sparred with this guy, and knew him, and talked with him. It's not like we're friends, but we talked and had conversations. It's strange. He had a little bit of a swagger to him, a real cocky kind of attitude, and he was dressed in a little of what I'd call a military look. We were asking him where his equipment was. He said he never wore a headgear or a mouthguard when he sparred. In the first round, I hit him with some pretty good body shots. He was bleeding from the mouth, which is pretty common if you're not wearing a mouthguard. It's easy to get cut, and he was spitting out blood and was complaining about pain in his stomach. In the second round, he started complaining more and he was grabbing his ribs. I carried him. You're sparring. The guy's hurt. You don't try to kill him, but he was a coward. He had this arrogant attitude, but I felt he should have stepped it up.
3: As well as this, multiple coaches who worked with Tamlan described him as talented but too arrogant, and also made note that his back was in really bad shape and he couldn't get into the Olympics. Later, rule changes disqualified all non-US citizens from Golden Gloves boxing, which essentially ended Tamerlan's boxing career and Olympic hopes, causing him to become additionally bitter and resentful towards America. Um, yeah, from doing the research for this, that's one thing that seemed to be a real big turning point. He had his hopes and like everything pinned on the Olympics. He wasn't really interested in the idea of becoming a professional boxer. Some reason that wasn't something that um, excited him. It was, the, it was the idea of going to the Olympics and representing America, uh, which... You know, after what we've said about him already kind of changing his ideology a little bit and his way of thinking, it's quite a weird juxtaposition that. But I think um, this really put a bit of taste in his mouth about America and about the rules changing and him thinking that basically American... America wasn't welcoming to him or his people and they thought of him as a secondary sis- citizen and it was just a big, yeah, big fucky to him really.
4: Yeah, because I, I thought, is this a fame thing? Because you did do a lot of interviews, um, student, predominantly student magazines, but I I thought then, well, if it's not a fame thing, maybe it's a um, actually living the American dream and going from an asylum seeker to, a, a, you know, a, a, an Olympic athlete. I couldn't tell if it was the the success, that, that, that American Dream story, or if he just wanted fame.
3: But then be a pro boxer, because you can get just, as, I mean, maybe it's different now, maybe boxing, I don't know, is boxing more famous now than it was? I don't know, who knows, but you could get that from being a pro boxer. Like, I think it's, maybe it's just the acceptance of representing America, maybe that would have been what he, he was really going yeah. for. But yeah, it's it's this is a really big turning point in Tamerlan's
4: thinking. In 2009, Tamalam began seeing a lady called Nadine Asensal, who would eventually move in with him and his family in their property on 410 Norfolk Street. However, this relationship was very tumultuous, with neighbours often complaining of the noise levels when the pair would argue, and Nadine actually ended up making numerous calls to 911, crying hysterically and asking for help. So this is quite an interesting point. Many have speculated that Tamerlan's family were aware of the arguing and potential violence in the house but essentially turned a blind eye uh, to her cries whilst others have claimed that they were completely unaware. Either way, Tamerlan was arrested on the 28th of July 2009 for aggravated domestic assault and battery but the charges were later dropped for lack of prosecution meaning that Nadine likely decided to drop the charges. Their relationship ended soon after. In the years that followed, Tamerlan began dating an American woman named Catherine Russell, who was from Rhode Island. Catherine fell deeply in love with Tamerlan and would regularly travel to see him while she was studying at Suffolk University in Boston. She eventually even converted to Islam for him and began wearing a hijab. However, a similar pattern emerged to that of his previous relationship. Catherine's friends would say that Tamerlan would regularly call her a slut in front of their friends and would also be highly unpredictable in his moods and behaviours. Catherine's college roommate said the following.
0: Tamerlan was very controlling and very manipulative of Catherine. Everyone who knows him knows he was combative and angry. He would often call her names and insult her in front of us. He would call her a slut and a prostitute and they would get into fights where he would fly into rages and sometimes throw furniture or throw things at her. He often talked about being angry with the government, and he said that he felt that Islam was under attack.
3: In 2010, despite the issues they were encountering, Catherine became pregnant with Townland's child. She dropped out of college in her junior year as a result, and the pair made plans to marry. They opted to marry on the 21st of June, and the wedding was completed within a 15-minute ceremony at a registry office in Dorchester known as Masheed al-Quran. The couple would have a daughter four months later, whom they named Sahara. Despite seemingly having his life worked out, Tamerlan would regularly get in trouble with police, often for driving offences, being pulled over nine times in the next three years.
4: It's a lot of pulling over. That is a lot, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Really, yeah. Oof. Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. My brain straightened out. In 2011, now completely finished with his dreams of becoming an Olympic boxer and having started a family with a Western woman, Tamerlan became more and more conflicted and resentful towards the American way of life. He also continued to immerse himself in the online world of extremism, to the point that he is eventually monitored by Russia's Federal Security Service, known as the FSB. It is alleged that the FSB got in touch with the FBI to say that Tamerlan was a follower of Islamic extremism and a strong believer. The FSB also said that he was preparing to leave the United States in order to travel to Russia to join unspecified underground groups. At that point, the FBI asked the FSB for more information, but the Russians did not respond to the American request and the FBI officially closed the case. But it is also alleged that the FBI interviewed Tamerlan and his family but found no evidence of terrorist activity. Tamerlan's mother, who has since been heavily critical of the FBI, painted a very different picture of this interaction, saying the following in an interview with Russian international news broadcaster RT. They feared
0: Tamerlan was an extremist leader and that he was getting lots of information from apparent extremist sites. As a result, Tamerlan had been put under FBI surveillance for at least three years. They were watching my family. They were trying to control every step of him. He is an innocent
4: boy. Tamerlan's mother, Zubadat's comments should be taken with a pinch of salt, as it was later proven that she had held multiple verbal and text message conversations with her son, discussing jihadism, and that her son was, quote, ready to die for Islam. She also had a checkered criminal history herself. After arriving in America, when it was revealed that she was arrested for trying to steal sixteen hundred dollars worth of clothes, which yeah, that's a lot of clothes, isn't it? Or just one really just a, expensive, a nice high brand, yeah. A pair of slippers, yeah. Some Kanye's Yeezys. Oh my god, you are so fuck! Are
3: you sure you're not fifty-five? You he got some Kanye's. You got some Yeezys by the sound of it
1: To get started, visit plushcare.com weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
3: <laughs> um, we then arrive at 2012, and this could be argued as the most pivotal moment in Tamerlan's life to this point. Tamerlan and his wife arranged a six-month trip to Russia, during which time they continued to receive state benefits from America, including food stamps and social welfare. Tamerlan tells friends and immigration officials that the purpose of the trip is to introduce their baby to their extended relatives and to introduce his wife to his home country and culture. However, the trip covers far more than this. Both Tamerlan's mother and father have claimed that he was with specific family members and even directly with Tamerlan's father during timeframes in which would later be proven to have not lined up. For example, Anzor, Tamerlan's father, claimed that he was with his son in Dagestan in March. However, Anzor did not arrive there until May. Tamilan was also observed on as many as six separate occasions, making visits to a known Islamic militant in the area. He was put in touch with two contacts in the area, both of whom were later killed by anti-extremism units. With both of his contacts dying, it is alleged that Tamerlan got scared and decided to return to the US. Many, including at the time US Homeland Security Chairman Michael McCall, believe that Tamerlan spent months in various parts of North Caucasus being radicalised and trained, including being shown how to both build and detonate small improvised explosive devices. Chechnya at the time was believed to be where rebel leaders had increasingly aligned themselves with al-Qaeda and other militant Islamists. US Homeland Security Chairman Michael McColl said the following.
0: What I'm very concerned about is that when he went over there, he very well may have been radicalised and trained by these Chechen rebels, who are the fiercest of all the jihad warriors.
4: Tamerlan returned to Boston six months later, now having grown a long, thick beard, and also wearing coal around his eyes. K-O-H-L, not... But it's got a similar effect, essentially like a mascara or eye cosmetic. I don't want to offend anyone, but coal. So yeah, just a bit of coal around the eyes. Um, K-O-H-L, there it is again. According to those that knew him, he returned to America with an increasingly religious tone, with many, including his younger brother Johar, who had always looked up to him, believing that he had now become an extremist. His behaviour had clearly escalated to the point that he would often look for conflict or go out of his way to preach his own beliefs. He would continue to spend all of his time on the internet and at the mosque and didn't take up employment despite his wife working 70 hours a week as a home carer in order to feed her family. Over the next year, Tamerlan would build up a reputation within his local community as a man who, according to his neighbour, took offence to celebrating anything. So yeah, wasn't very happy about people celebrating things. Tamerlan would regularly disrupt local speakers, and he would regularly confront local shop workers and would berate even his own family for doing anything, even remotely westernised. In November 2012, Tamerlan reportedly confronted a shopkeeper at a Middle Eastern grocery store in Cambridge, which was near a mosque that he sometimes prayed. And after seeing a sign in this shop that said, Thanksgiving turkeys, he screamed, This is kafar which basically translates to this is not right. And later the same month, Tamerlan stood up and challenged a sermon in which a speaker said, just like we celebrate the birth of the prophet, we can also celebrate July 4th and Thanksgiving. Once again, he was repeatedly screaming, this is kafar. Two months later in January of 2013, Tamerlan once again disrupted a speaker at his local mosque who made the comparison between Prophet Muhammad and Martin Luther King Jr. And, and yeah, this basically infuriated Tamilan. So Tamilan again stood up and started shouting at the speakers, claiming that the comparison was not fair, was not right. Uh, and he was shouted down by a number of other members of the congregation. And he was later asked to not return to the mosque unless he was willing to refrain from shouting outbursts during sermons. From this moment onwards, Tamilan never returned to the mosque and began to plan a series of events that would, in his mind, even the playing field and spark a series of copycat actions to strike America to its very core.
3: Before we move to our timeline, it's important that we briefly cover Tamerlan's younger brother, Johar. The argument still persists to date as to exactly how much Johar was actively involved and or manipulated into his role in the bombings, but we will jump into that argument in more detail after our timeline but to give some understanding and perspective of his journey compared to his older brother's is important. Johar was born 6 years after his older brother, being the youngest of the 4 children. Unlike his siblings, Johar was born in Dagestan, Russia. He moved to America with his parents in 2003, when he was 10 years old, and immediately went into education at Cambridgeport Elementary in Boston. So it could be argued that Johar had a much easier transition into Western society than his older brother, who was still in Russia living with his uncle at this point. Joe then went on to attend Cambridge Ringe and Latin High School, where he had no problem making friends and was very popular within the school. Just like his older brother, he was athletically gifted and he quickly became a member of the football team and one of the best wrestlers in the school. He would go on to compete locally and regionally and earn the Greater Boston Winter League Wrestling Trophy, that's a mouthful, at the age of 17. I've just won the Greater Boston Winter League Wrestling Trophy.
4: I was going to say, I hope it wasn't engraved. That would take a sweet bit of time, wouldn't it? Longer than that wedding. 15 minutes.
3: He also took on occasional work, working as a lifeguard at Harvard University and also working at a local Boston coffee shop. And I just thought, Boston, coffee, Beantown. That's... Oh, sorry, Ben, this is for you. He's done, yeah? That's interesting. Thanks, Tom. Couldn't have done that better myself. Let me do it again. again. I just thought, Boston, coffee, Beantown. (laughs) That's interesting. Oh, my God. He's done me back, Dan. Hit it, Danny. (laughs) Stop it Ben Carter's interesting facts interesting
0: facts
4: welcome back welcome back welcome back I uh, you know I, I'm gonna keep it short this week. It's a big episode lots to get into Whoa. but Boston it's a funny old place isn't it Boston one of the You've first been things, there, have you no but it's on my list I'll be there I'll be there soon bro but from the, from the things I've read it's a funny old place and a lot of people hold it dear to their hearts which I completely appreciate I can see I'm back on that fence and one of the first things I read about Boston is don't call it Bean Town. Never, you know. never have, never will. Yeah, it, well, yeah. In, in the Discord, my nickname is Bean. And, you know, Bean goes to Bean Town might have been the sort of title of my trip to, to Boston one day, but obviously I won't do that. Your captions
3: flick it. Flick it good.
4: <laughs> so, anyway. <laughs> So, yeah, Boston. Apparently, the city of Boston is nicknamed Beantown uh, because between the 18th and 19th centuries, we're getting into classic interesting facts here, when the city was flush with molasses from the sugar trade with the West Malash. Indies. Uh, molasses are spilling off your tongue. Uh, and this was from the sugar alleged sugar trade from the West Indies, but during that time frame, some people have also pointed out, obviously, there was a, a large slave trade going on. Uh, people didn't know what to do with all those extra molasses. And so... They began to slow cook their baked beans in the sugary goop, and apparently, uh, and apparently, adding molasses to baked beans uh, made them the best beans that money could buy for hundreds of years. So much so that Boston became known as Bean Town, quickly giving birth to the catchphrase, "You don't know beans until you've been to Boston." Mm. You don't know beans until you've been to Boston.
3: You don't know beans? until <laughs> you be in Boston. <laughs>
4: The triangular trade of slaves in the 18th century helped to make Boston an exporter of rum, which is produced by the distillation of fermented molasses. So over time they would add more and more molasses to their beans uh, and it would become basically ingrained in local baked bean recipes, uh, creating a very distinctive style and taste unique to New England at the time. However, as hundreds of years have now gone by, and perhaps the most preposterous thing about calling Boston bean town is the fact that it's not actually very easy to find Boston baked beans in Boston. I don't know, Dan or Tom, when you've both been, if you've ever had Boston baked beans.
0: Never looked, to be honest with you. Never been to Boston.
3: Oh, I thought you'd been. My cousin was living there. Oh, bugger. So well, not.
4: maybe reach out to your family and see if they've had a Boston baked bean, because they're won't. supposed to be delicious. Okay, sure. Um... <laughs> But uh, yeah, don't call it Bean Town because actually, it's very hard to find Boston baked beans. In fact, some of Boston's oldest, most classic restaurants are disappearing, and with them, the iconic dish. Some uh, online commenters argue that Chicago is the rightful Bean Town due to its new, well, relatively new, large, shiny bean sculpture known as Cloud Gate. Uh, but yeah, Boston seems to be a bit more offended by the name Bean Town, so and they're low on Boston beans, so don't go calling it Bean Town, will you? And CBS actually did a national survey for the most annoying American city nicknames, and Bean Town came in at number five. And I thought, if you if you haven't looked at my notes, could you guess the other four oh, annoying annoying city nicknames in America? Big Apple, Big Apple. No, that's not on there. San Fran. San Fran is number four. Brilliant. Well, San Fran is that a nickname, just abbreviation? There's another one for San Fran. It's on here twice, which is also kind of a an abbreviation. i going to just get annoyed by anything. CC No, nearly. SF Cisco. Cisco. Very nearly, but it rhymes with that. Cisco. Frisco. Frisco. One one. One a So we're now down to the the last two. Shall I tell you the cities? Yeah. Dallas and Hollywood. Hollywood, Hollywood is um, yeah,
0: downtown. Uh, hmm?
4: La, La La Land. No, but on that play on that, yeah. The Hills of Hollywood.
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, no. Um, yeah. Land of
4: Dreams. No. no. Oh, no. So Dallas. Uh, apparently, it's annoying to call Dallas or refer to Dallas as Big D. Um, apparently, it you know, annoys people. Annoyed me. And then Hollywood, Hollyweird.
3: Hollyweird. Oh. Hollyweird. What was that
4: on the lent? Yeah, all of the uh, <laughs> recent things that have come out of Hollywood. That, uh, so, yeah, don't well, that's be. That's number using,
0: one, Holly Weird. I've never heard Holly it of my weird Life. Is one.
4: Yeah, I think it's offensive to locals, I believe. There you go, so Bean Town. So, yeah, don't be using uh, annoying nicknames and make sure that you you save some molasses for your baked beans. <laughs> Back to the episode.
3: Ben Carter's interest in facts. Interesting facts.
4: So unlike his older brother, Johar was very popular with pupils and teachers alike. And when he graduated and upon completing his high school years, the city of Cambridge awarded him with $2,500 in scholarship money. In 2011, when he was 18, he contacted a professor at the University of Massachusetts, Dartmouth, who was teaching a class about Chechen history, something that Johar actively wished to learn more about, based on stories he had heard from his parents and his older brother. By all accounts, Johar was a popular person, had a large circle of friends, had a number of girlfriends, and was a highly intelligent student, as well as being a gifted athlete. However, he seemed to completely idolize his older brother Tamarlan, and place his opinion and beliefs above anything else, including his own. And based on the experiences we have explained so far for Tamarlan, you can imagine just how much he would have shared with his younger brother Johar during his formative years, both having had completely different experiences acclimatising to Western life. According to Tamarlan's boxing coach John Curran, who was aware of Johar based on his wrestling reputation, The young
0: brother was like a puppy dog, following his older brother everywhere, often without question. He would sometimes come to the gym, but he would only watch, never fight. He seemed introverted, especially in comparison to his older brother's outgoing nature. He followed him everywhere, in every way.
3: And it, it, um, it's been said that Tamlan looked at his brother very much like a father figure, the same way Tamlan looked at his father, because he, because his dad was wasn't present in those times. He looked up at Tamlan, he looked at, respected him, he believed for what he said, and yeah, as as um, John Curum was saying there, in terms of just followed him around. I think he was, you know, he would follow him anywhere and do anything he thought was right. And Johar would sadly follow his older brother into an event that would change his and thousands of other people's lives forever. It is here that we move to the
4: timeline of the Boston Marathon bombings. Early 2013 Soon after returning from a six-month visit to Russia, Tamerlan Sanaev created his own YouTube channel with links to a number of videos. Two of these videos are noted to have been added by Tamerlan under a playlist labelled Terrorists, though both videos are later deleted. It's not clear when they were deleted, or by whom. Analysis by CNN and the SITE Intelligence Institute managed to obtain a screen grab from one of those videos from Tamerlan's channel. It features members of the group Imirat kavkaz which was identifiable by the logo on their shirts. Imarat kavkaz is the most potent and highly volatile militant Islamist group in the North Caucasus, which includes Chechnya and Dagestan, areas that Tamerlan and his family had many roots and had spent a great deal of their recent time in.
3: April 15th, 2013, the day of the Boston Marathon, 6am. Boston Police Commissioner Ed Davis wakes up early in order to make his way towards central Boston to watch the marathon. He takes his wife with him as well as two of his close friend's children, whose parents are running in the race. They make their way to the VIP stand where Davis chats with Marathon Security.
0: The Marathon is a big day for us in Boston. I got up early and I got in there. I actually brought my wife and the children of one of my buddies. We went to the VIP stands and got them set up to watch the race. I spoke to the security people there. The officer in charge of the detail and I spoke to a number of people who were involved, doing things like the bomb sweep that we did at 6am. There are bomb dogs that walk up the race course from Gloucester Street all the way to the finish line at 6am to make sure there are no explosive devices there. And then we do that again after the crowd is in place. All of those systems are in place. We had pickpockets in the crowd the year before. We were on lookout for those and, of course, any other potential security issues that popped up.
3: 8am. The 117th Boston Marathon begins in Hopkinton, Massachusetts, with thousands of runners participating. Elite runners begin the marathon in the first wave, and more waves are later launched for other competitors. Throughout the morning and early afternoon, hundreds of runners complete the marathon and a large number of spectators gather near the finish line on Boylston Street in Boston. Amongst the runners who complete the marathon that day is Boston Police Superintendent William B. Evans, who completes his 19th Boston Marathon and 52nd in total marathon before heading back to the Boston Athletic Club to recover.
0: It's a local holiday in Boston for Patriots Day. Everybody comes out and watches the marathon. It's a big day in the city, it's a special day. It was like any other marathon you ever had. Everyone was happy, and it couldn't have been a more picture-perfect day. To have my family there, to have my police crew there, you know, it gives you goosebumps.
3: Sadly, this picture-perfect
4: day would quickly turn into a living nightmare for the people of Boston. Approximately 2.49pm, As runners continue to make their way towards the finish line on Boylston Street and crowds continue to flock to get a view of their loved ones completing the marathon, a homemade pressure cooker bomb placed in a backpack explodes within a large crowd near the finish line. The blast is significant, violently spraying shell fragments and debris into those that had gathered. It's force-throwing many dozens of people across the street and into one another. The explosion creates chaos and shock among spectators and runners, with many people losing limbs, breaking bones, getting second and third degree burns, as well as obtaining numerous shrapnel related injuries. Boston Globe photographer John Tulumaki was standing by the finish line in order to capture the scene of numerous marathon completions, including those with disabilities and those in wheelchairs, but he captures a vastly different scene than he could ever have comprehended.
0: I was literally standing on the finish line and I was ready for a runner to come across. I had my wide angle lens like I normally would be shooting and as that bomb went off, I felt it. It was just the loudest thing. I don't know how to describe it, but maybe like someone taking a baseball bat and just smashing an empty barrel next to your face. It's that loud percussion and my body felt it. I felt jolted by it. Instinctively, I just shot whatever happened in front of me. And that runner, Bill Ifrig, fell to the ground in front of me and the three Boston police officers reacted to him. That's when I took this picture.
3: Seconds later, approximately 14 seconds after the first explosion, a second bomb, also made from a pressure cooker, detonates only 210 yards away from the first explosion. This causes further injuries and chaos, with 5,700 runners still to finish the marathon. Photographer John Tamaki, who is still processing what just happened, recalls the following.
0: Before I could even react to the first, the second bomb went off two blocks down the street on Boylston Street. I guess you could describe it as pandemonium, and nobody was really sure what had happened. I wasn't sure. I kind of thought maybe it was a manhole cover exploding, because they sometimes do in Boston from steam. And looking over to my right, I was very close to that first bomb. I just remember this blue haze that hung over me like a fog on Boylston Street, and then I smelled it. It smelled like fireworks."
4: And I think that's the thing that stood out to me as well. So that first photo that he's referencing of Bill Ifrig is, it later became famous. It was on billboards and magazines celebrating the response and the heroic efforts of many people at the scene. but. In terms of capturing the second bomb going off, it reminds me so much of, obviously, there were people when 9-11 happened filming the impact and the reaction to the first tower. And then in the background, you can see the second tower being hit. Very much, although it's such a quicker sequence of events in this one, it's absolutely horrific um, seeing the two different bombs go off very, very quickly, one after another.
3: It might be stupid to say, but if you had one bomb and then you just think oh that's an individual incident but if you have two you then immediately think how mm-hmm. many more is there so is yeah. this the terror of you run away one direction are you running towards the next bomb that's going to go off and
4: yeah definitely i mean in terms of the different surveillance and, and handheld footage available you can see people react to the first bomb and they're kind of very much taking in their surroundings trying to uh, kind of assess what's happened then the second the second bomb goes off they immediately begin to disperse and try and get out of the area so yeah completely agree Kelly Hefferman, a nurse who had volunteered to work on the 2013 finish line, recalls the confusion and chaos.
0: In the moment when it happened, we weren't sure what it was. We thought a transformer blew or something. You just don't think bomb. The husband of one of the volunteers was a firefighter, and he looked at all of us and said, that's a bomb, that's the smell of sulfur.
4: Altogether, the two bombs claimed the lives of three people. Crystal Campbell, aged 29, from Medford, Massachusetts, and she sadly passed away as a result of the first bomb. Lingzi Lu, aged 23, from Liaoning, China, and tragically, Martin Richard, aged 8, from Dorchester, Massachusetts, uh, and those two would sadly pass away from the second bomb. The bombs also caused devastating injuries to 281 people and shattered the lives of thousands more. And yeah, I think that's that's something that really is 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 graphic and and very present in the uh, photos and videos that have emerged from this case. Um, I mean, some of them are amongst the worst photos I've seen. The whole streets, pavements are covered in blood, clothing, uh, shrapnel, body parts. It it's the photos are incredibly graphic from this one. It really hits home.
3: I think some people may look at you know the bombings and see the death toll and maybe think considering how many people were there it, it's you know it's, it's you know it's surprised how many the lack of people that died obviously not to under, undermine it but then you see like you said in terms of the amount of people that are injured losing limbs all the shrapnel black pits flying around everywhere it, when you look at the amount of people injured it is, it is staggering and um, yeah as, as Ben said it, it looks like a war zone like it yeah, obviously it's yeah. a bomb going off in a crowd of people and we'll get onto to it in terms of where the bombs were placed and CCTV footage it's no accident where they're placed and it just shows how callous they are with, with where they
4: decided to do this as well Yeah, absolutely. Due to the sheer volume of injuries, as well as the subsequent 911 calls that were made, victims of the bombings are taken to a total of 27 different local hospitals for treatment, some having to have lengthy surgeries and 14 others having to have limbs amputated. Some marathon runners are not aware of the carnage that they are about to encounter, and people continue crossing the finish line until 2.57pm, 8 minutes after the explosions. 3pm onwards,
3: first responders including police officers, firefighters and medical personnel rush to the scene to provide aid to the injured, as do members of the public. Others flee the scene entirely with fears that more explosions are coming. Many become stuck in the crowds. The area near the finish line is evacuated and authorities begin investigating the bombings. Authorities describe the blast as a terrorist attack and vow to bring whoever is responsible to justice. At the time, Massachusetts governor, Deval Patrick, receives a call from the head of Massachusetts Emergency Management Authority, who was down at the finish line and with whom he had managed any numbers of emergencies. He said the following about the phone call.
0: I knew him to be exceedingly competent and calm always, and it's the first time I'd ever heard him sound really shaken. He said to me, Governor, I'm down here at the finish line. There's been at least one, maybe two explosions. Maybe it was a manhole cover, we're not sure. But there are body parts all over Boylston Street. It's a mess. I think you better get down here.
3: 27-year-old Jeff Bauman, who is waiting at the finish line for his girlfriend, Erin Hurley, suffers life-threatening injuries. He was standing directly next to an individual who he claimed placed a backpack on the ground before looking at him and walking away. The backpack was later revealed to have contained one of the pressure cooker bombs. The blast caused Jeff to lose both his legs, having to have surgery to amputate both of them above the knee. He blamed Erin for the accident, and also caused the upper half of his body to catch fire, which was immediately put out by a man named Carlos Arredondo, who was given out American flags at the finish line. Carlos hopped the crowd barrier and went directly into the scenes of chaos in order to cover Jeff, put out the fire and rush him to emergency services. Again, photographer John Tamaki was able to document this horrific event.
0: I moved along and took photos of Nicole Gross, and she had this horrific look on her face. Her red shirt is just tattered with shrapnel, and she's just lying in a pool of blood. I just ran to the barricades, and the police were trying to rip them down. As that haze cleared, I could see onto the sidewalk right in front of me, and I saw the real carnage. I saw bodies and body parts in front of me. I went onto the sidewalk and started shooting. Then I saw Jeff Bauman and he's pretty much on fire and people are trying to put out his smouldering clothes. It was just like those types of scenes, I just had to shoot. I tried to be sensitive to what was going on but how could you be? I felt like there were so many heroic people that were there saving people's lives. I walked through thousands of people who were like zombies. They didn't know what was going on. I had to get back to my car because I knew I had to get those photos out,
4: and I think that's the thing. Like Tom said, until the second bomb goes off, people are very much putting it down to maybe an accident or, or some kind of unfortunate situation that's happened. I mean, let's 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 get it right, Ben. Exploding manhole covers. Yeah, that's terrifying in itself.
3: Yeah, if that's a thing that happens.
4: Yeah, well, I did, I always thought that was more of a cartoon thing when the the teenage mutant ninja turtles emerge. I mean, that is that's a cartoon thing. Yeah, but, um, it's usually water and some of them are probably surfing, um, but. No, the gas explosions are obviously far more far more deadly. Oh, yeah. But my my point being is that the, the individuals that did stay, because the second the second bomb goes off, people began to flee. There was absolute scenes of carnage. But then the first responders, members of the public, this photographer, they're all running back into that scene, not knowing that the bombing is over. And there could potentially be a series of other ones. And that just, that thought. So this guy's gut instinct is to obviously... He's all about getting these photographs and documenting the incident. Other people are about saving lives and it's just, yeah, I can't imagine that situation not knowing that the, that the bombing hadn't stopped and still putting yourself in danger. So Jeff Bauman, the individual who would lose both of his legs, would go on to play a huge part in the subsequent investigation into the bombings. He was immediately rushed to a nearby hospital where surgery was performed on the same day. Since he had lost such a large amount of blood, the doctors had to resuscitate him on four separate occasions, giving him blood and fluids. He underwent another operation at 1am the following morning in order to drain the internal fluids that had formed as a result of the blunt trauma. Whilst in his hospital bed, he wrote the following on a piece of paper. Bag, saw the guy, looked right at me. Which yeah, given his given his condition, that was uh, yeah was this was a hugely significant moment for him to even now try and say, look, this was this was intentional, this was no accident. Once his condition was said to be stable, he was then interviewed by FBI agents and was able to give a description of Tamerlan Sanayev, who he claimed was quote absolutely one of the perpetrators. His description was then circulated across investigators and news media. His accounts were instrumental in narrowing down the suspects from among the people pictured in the area. As police had thousands of hours worth of content to review from different surveillance cameras and many thousands of different people coming into view within that footage, Jeff would later recall.
0: I know exactly when my life changed, when I looked into the face of Tamerlan Sanaev. It was 2.48pm on April 15th, 2013. One minute before the most high-profile terrorist event on United States soil since September 11th, and he was standing right beside me.
4: And I think, yeah, that's a point. So there were so many, obviously, so many different shops and restaurants and, and cafes and bagel shops. And maybe there was a baked bean department. Um, mm. uh, lots of surveillance, lots of handheld uh, cameras, lots of surveillance, lots of footage to review. They had thousands of hours. And, and obviously, as we'll get on to discuss, these two individuals placed the backpacks in the most densely populated areas where the largest crowds were. So there were so many different faces to review and and so many different people coming forward with different conflicting information. uh, Without this Jeff Bauman, this would have taken so much longer. Um, So he's, yeah, he's considered a real hero for this case. And and many have labelled him a hero for the information and support he was able to provide on that particular day, Uh, obviously massively in part due to the condition he was in as well. And this is something that Jeff has since struggled to come to terms with. I don't like
0: being called a hero. I've always struggled with that word. I was just a guy that was in the wrong place at the wrong time. In my eyes, there's heroes I look up to, people who saved me, My caretakers, people at Boston Medical Center, my surgeon, the people that pulled me off that ground, who pulled me out. Those are my heroes. The police, the paramedics. Those are the true heroes.
3: April 16th, 2013. Federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies, including the FBI and the Boston Police Department, launched a joint investigation into the bombings. The city of Boston and nearby communities are on high alert with public transportation suspended and a lockdown in place as authorities searched for suspects. One of America's biggest cities went into a state of fear and uncertainty, as police launched a chaotic multi-day manhunt for who was responsible. Busy city streets were now empty. Red Sox games were cancelled. Train and bus services were suspended to and from Boston. Taxi and
4: public transit services were also suspended. New stations around the world carried wall-to-wall coverage. April 18th, 2013, 5.20pm. After tens of thousands of man hours are spent reviewing various surveillance footage, interviewing survivors and reviewing all traceable evidence, the FBI decides to release photos of the two suspects carrying backpacks that they identify as Suspect 1 and Suspect 2. These photos would also later become known as White Hats, Black Hat. The FBI said that they were doing this and releasing these photos in part to limit harm to people wrongly identified by news reports and on social media. Because yeah, a big part of this case is that there were so many different conflicting reports in 911 calls made in social media posts in in news coverage as well, where they were blaming a a large group of individuals, one particular individual, and there were a lot of uh, uh, people that were arrested for the wrong reasons. So while there are some very highly praised elements of the work that the responding services did, there is also some criticism placed on the misinformation that was spread. Surveillance footage is also released of the suspects where it is evidence that they stayed to observe the chaos after the explosions before casually walking away whilst those around them began to scatter in a blind panic. And again, yeah, it becomes very obvious when you see that footage as well because they are literally heading in the complete opposite direction, very much observing the damage that they have done and there's, there's a complete calmness about them which is really, really disturbing. These suspects are later identified through the help of the general public as brothers Johar and Tamerlan Sanaev, much to the shock and dismay of those that knew them. A manhunt begins to locate and apprehend the suspects. At the same time, multiple memorials are set up to remember the lives of those that were lost. Flowers, flags, crosses and hearts filled the streets as close as they could get to Boylston.
3: 10.48pm. Later that night and three days have now passed since the bombings. Police respond to a number of calls on the campus of the Massachusetts Institution of Technology, located in Cambridge, with many claiming to have heard loud popping noises outside of their accommodations. 26-year-old University Police Officer Sean Collier was parked in his vehicle adjacent to one of the buildings, where he is suddenly ambushed by Johar and Tamalin, who proceed to shoot him six times. He dies almost immediately from his injuries. Police later say they believe the bombing suspects were responsible for the shooting as they would have been panicking due to their photos being released to the general public and perhaps murdered Officer Collier in an attempt to gain his weapons, but had failed to do so due to his security retention system. The Saniya brothers then robbed a convenience store before hijacking a Mercedes SUV belonging to Chinese dual national Danny Meng, also taking Danny hostage in the process. Tamerlan got into the vehicle with Danny, informing him that Danny was now responsible for the Boston Marathon bombing as well as the murder of Officer Collier. Johar followed behind in the brothers' green Honda Civic. Johar later abandoned the Honda and got into the Mercedes with Danny and Tamalan, entering the vehicle with a number of bags. The hostage would later claim that the brothers were frequently discussing driving to New York City and bobbing in Times Square. According to Danny, during the drive, Tamalan turned to him and asked him, "Do you know who I am?" When Danny said that he didn't, Tamalan replied, "I just did the Boston Marathon bombing, and I've just killed a policeman in Cambridge." Upon hearing this, Danny began praying
4: in fear of his own life. I think mean, that's a, a, an unusual way to go about things because they've got they've taken him hostage, hijacked his vehicle and then told him, you're responsible for this, you've done it. And then all of a sudden he's like, do you know who I am though? Do you know what I've done? It's weird.
3: I mean, imagining that they're planning probably to kill him at the end of it, you'd have thought. Yeah, you would assume so. Um, and perhaps they had the adrenaline and everything still going. I mean, obviously it's a few days later and whatnot, but... Um, seeing the reaction of someone from what
4: they've done and trying to get, you know, power from doing that. But it's very peculiar. They've just murdered a police officer as well for literally no reason if they weren't able to to, to get his weapon as well. So they, yeah, they are on an absolute uh, rampage at this point. The group stop at the ATM
3: on the outskirts of the Boston suburb of Watertown, where they force Danny to withdraw $800 and give it to them. They then drive to a petrol station in order to fill up on fuel for their long journey to New York. While the pair enter the station to pay for fuel and snacks, Danny is fortunately able to escape the vehicle and run for his life which is a really um, brave moment he's done this and decided to do this he's decided this is the time for me to make the run for it um, you can imagine that he was he was as well thinking at the time he was going to be killed he thought this, this is the end but um, he decides to make a run for it Danny makes his way to a petrol station on the opposite side of the road where he begs the clerk to dial 911 so Danny basically he loved the car that they they stole from him it was that he came over here wanted to live the American dream he got his dream car and he actually knew by heart the tracker code for his car uh, which I mean which is a
4: i have no idea like how you'd even find out what the code is yeah i was gonna say i don't imagine they're like three or four digit numbers even no. but they're extensive but he's able to give that immediately to the police
3: who are then able to track the car unbeknownst to um to the brothers driving off which obviously the police use this um, and they track the vehicle to the location of watertown boston um which watertown apparently is a very quiet suburb it's very not much crime happens there you know it's kids mucking about it's The police are there apparently. It's very rare for them to pull a gun out. It's a very quiet, peaceful neighbourhood. They get a a phone call basically saying about carjacking happening. I think it's just kids mucking about. Uh, But what they're about to witness is
4: uh, something very different. Shortly after midnight, police use the tracking number in order to locate Danny's vehicle and track down the two perpetrators in Watertown. A number of additional units are called in when the vehicle is observed turning into Laurel Street. Numerous units arrive and form an improvised roadblock at the intersection of Laurel and Dexter. Upon seeing the arriving police cars, Tamerlan stepped out of the Mercedes and immediately opened fire on them, with two police officers quickly returning fire and requesting emergency assistance over their radios. A gun battle ensued between Tamerlan and multiple police officers, with up to 300 bullets being fired, 56 of which came from Tamilan. Additionally, the brothers detonated at least one pressure cooker bomb and threw what was referred to as five crude grenades towards the officers, three of which exploded and two did not detonate. Many believe that this was the brothers' weaponry for their planned Times Square attack, all used up. The Watertown shootout lasted for almost seven minutes, with Tamerlan being shot multiple times and Johar also being shot and sustaining wounds to the ear, neck and thigh. Tamalan eventually ran out of ammunition and threw his empty pistol at Watertown Police Sergeant Jeffrey Pugliese, who subsequently tackled him to the ground upon realising that he was out of bullets. A total of 17 police officers were injured in the attack, one of which almost bled to death as a result of his injuries. And due to the fact that many of these officers had arrived to the scene from different agencies and districts, the shootout was badly criticised in terms of how effectively it was coordinated and was said to have put the general public at extreme risk. And I think that's the thing, when you have a situation as 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 drastic as this, um, and you are needing to kind of cull the threat as quickly as possible based on what's already happened, Um, I think maybe they were just trying to do everything they can to quickly subdue their suspects, but obviously um, it's received criticism and maybe, again, if it was not at midnight, if it was maybe a busier day, um, this could have caused a lot more injuries than actually happened. In the panic, Johar got back in his Mercedes and attempted to drive into the police that were arresting his brother. However, he accidentally struck and then drove over his own brother dragging his body under the car for approximately 9 metres, which is roughly 30 feet. Witnesses say that Tamilan was struck, pulled into the wheel well and dragged by the Mercedes by his brother. Tamilan now had a series of gunshot wounds as well as blunt trauma and internal injuries. And, quite ironically, according to the police, uh, at the point that his brother actually struck him with the vehicle uh, in in an attempt to hit police officers, they claimed that they were actually performing CPR on Tamilan when Johar then actually stop that from happening by driving towards police and, and running over his own brother. According to paramedic Michael Sullivan, who treated him after the shootout, Tamerlan angrily resisted any of the efforts by paramedics to treat him as he was being driven to hospital, lifting himself from the stretcher and screaming loudly multiple times. Tamilan died shortly after arriving at hospital, an hour and a half after the shootout. He was pronounced dead from several critical injuries, including massive blood loss, blunt force trauma, and cardiac and respiratory arrest. Johar, meanwhile, fled the scene into the darkness of the night, leading to an intense manhunt. The SUV was later found abandoned a quarter of a mile away, still in Watertown. Hours later, investigators revealed to the nation that Tamilan and his 19-year-old younger brother, Johar, are the Marathon bombing suspects. However, no additional information is revealed about Tamilan now being deceased. And again, this is all in the early hours of the morning, um, a couple of days obviously after the incident itself. But residents of Watertown were very aware of what was going on because they couldn't help but hear the carnage that was going on outside.
3: And yeah, just to talk about obviously the shootout happening in the middle of the street there, it was there was evidence of, you know, people shooting and police shooting and missing, obviously, and it going through walls, apparently in some, in one of the a nursery close to where a baby was sleeping, uh, there's a bullet hole in the wall. So it's just how manic the whole scene was, all the, all the gunfire happening, the crew grenades been thrown when the policeman thought he he didn't know what it was being thrown in the air. And it turned out to be one of those bombs once he realized, yeah, there's footage of it. Uh, and people caught on their phones from living around the area. And it's just like, imagine opening your, your curtains to that ben
4: it, yeah exactly I mean, it seems like there's so much additional sort of speed and force behind them trying to apprehend these guys and maybe as well it was influenced by obviously them murdering another you know one of their own another police officer a few hours before so, so
3: they but yeah they didn't but they they just thought they were carjackers they only knew afterwards after the fact they're like you know who that is you've got and they were told it's the wow. boston marathon bombers and they're like what and he's like and then the policeman apparently was like Well, that makes sense that they're throwing bombs (laughs) around when we're doing Uh this. It's not just your average carjackers, but they didn't, they didn't even realize they, they went in, I don't know if that would have affected them differently going how to try and, you know, capture them because they went, as you said, gung ho with it. Um, But yeah, I mean, again, you just have to take your hat off and tip your hat to the bravery of them, of them doing that. So April 19th, 2013, during the early hours of the morning, residents of Watertown, some of whom had woken to the sound of gunfire, began to receive automated phone calls and text messages informing them to remain indoors no matter what the circumstance.
4: That's that's absolutely terrifying.
3: Warrants were not issued, but residents reported they were told they must allow the searches to go forward. Many reported being instructed to leave their homes as well. Images of squad cars and large black armoured vehicles crowding the streets, and videos of residents being led out of their homes at gunpoint soon flooded social media. So obviously they're doing the search now for Johar. Um, But yeah, mass warrant being given on the whole city, essentially. Mm. That's something I've never heard of. It's a new one, yeah. Never heard of. Imagine the paperwork on that. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think they skipped that part, didn't they? A 20 block area of Watertown was cordoned off as officers scoured the area in tactical gear. Helicopters began to circle the area and SWAT teams in armoured vehicles moved through in formation, with officers going door-to-door and searching houses combing the area. As news quickly spread for the search of Johar, his father made the following plea on television.
0: Give up. You have a bright future ahead of you. Come home to Russia. If they killed you, then all hell would break loose. Ask for forgiveness. Turn yourself in.
4: The evening of April 19th, 2013. David Henneberry, a resident of Watertown who lived just outside the coordinated search area, noticed that the tarp was loose on his parked boat in his garden. As he went on to investigate, he noticed a body lying within the boat, surrounded by a pool of blood. He immediately calls police, who arrive at the property and quietly surround the boat. So this is what we kind of mentioned at the start of the case. This is my memory of um, of the Sky News coverage of, of the case itself and the apprehension of a suspect. Ben, I, remember, I thought it was under a trampoline. Did you
3: really? I have no idea why. I thought there was oh, a cover no. on a trampoline. I was like, that's surely
4: easy to yeah
3: get him but for some reason in my head was a trampoline
4: yeah. it looked like a little bit like a collapsed tent on top of some wood from the aerial view uh, yeah tarp and a boat in a way yeah, yeah yeah, this is actually
3: one block away from where the the gunfight happened with the police they yeah. combed all the area and it was so close the police didn't I mean obviously in hindsight you wouldn't think oh let's check the boat but there'd been yeah. blood on the boat you would have thought
4: mm. yeah So yeah, so the police are called and they now surround the boat. The figure inside the boat started poking at the tarp, prompting police to shoot at the boat. Now some people have suggested that shots were exchanged from within the boat, but no weapon was found to be on the individual within the boat. The hiding body is confirmed to be Johar Sanaev via a thermal imaging device on the police helicopters. He is quickly taken into police custody by law enforcement officers after a standoff and is transported to the hospital for treatment of injuries sustained during the manhunt. So, yeah, there's very infamous photos and and video footage of him being lifted off of the boat. He looks very drowsy, very weak, very frail. uh, And then they place him to the ground and arrest him. Uh, When he is taken to hospital, he is listed in critical condition. And according to a doctor that treated him, Johar had a skull base fracture with additional injuries to the middle ear, which I thought, what is the middle ear? Uh, Apparently it's, it's a part of your ear right next to the eardrum. He also had other injuries to the skull base, the lateral portion of his C1 vertebrae, and had significant soft tissue and internal injuries, as well as an injury to his throat, mouth and a small vascular injury. According to a nurse that looked after him during his rehabilitation, Johar cried for two days straight after regaining consciousness.
3: April 20th, 2013, Johar is officially charged with using a weapon of mass destruction and malicious destruction of property resulting in death. When being interrogated, he had to write his answers down as his injuries rendered him unable to speak. Officials said that Johar acknowledged his role in the bombings and told interrogators that he and Tamilan were motivated by extremist Islamic beliefs, not directly tied to any kind of terrorist cell. Johar confirmed Danny Meng's testimony that the brothers intended to target New York City's Times Square next. Motives for the attack appeared to be retaliation for the US military's involvement in Iraq and Afghanistan. June 15, 2013, Johar is indicted on 30 federal charges, including malicious destruction of properties resulting in death and conspiracy to use a weapon of mass destruction resulting in death, which carries a possible death penalty. Johar pleaded not guilty to all
4: counts against him. January 30, 2014 United States Attorney General Eric Holder announced that the federal government would seek the death penalty against Johar, after a plea deal had failed when the government refused to rule out the possibility of the death penalty. We flash forward another year, January 5th 2015, almost two years after the attacks, the trial of Johar Saniyev begins in the Federal District Court in Boston. The defense very much focuses on the narrative that Tamerlan was the mastermind and that Johar was merely a follower of the older brother that he idolized. During the sentencing phase of his murder trial, Johar argued that he should not receive the death penalty primarily on the grounds that his older brother Tamerlan took the leading role and induced Johar's participation in the bombings. Johar argued that Tamerlan was a highly violent man and that Tamerlan had radicalised him. He also argued that he had participated in the bombings because of Tamerlan's violent influence and leadership. In support of this argument, Joe Haas sought to introduce evidence that Tamerlan previously committed three brutal ideologically inspired murders in Waltham, Massachusetts, exactly 10 years after the 9-11 attacks. So yeah, these, these murders are, which I, I had no idea about this uh, before we jumped into this case, these murders are referred to as the 2011 September 11th Waltham triple murders, and they relate to the brutal murders of three Jewish friends – Brendan Mess, Eric Weissman and Raphael Tekken, who all had their throats cut with ice picks and knives to the point that they were nearly decapitated within Brendan Mess's apartment. It was revealed that $5,000 in cash as well as thousands of dollars worth of marijuana were left covering the bodies, proving that the motive was not financial. Tamalan knew at least one of the victims and disapproved heavily of his lifestyle. It is also alleged that both forensic and phone call evidence can place Tamilan and his brother Johar at the scene. The case still technically remains unsolved to date with many believing that the brothers were responsible for the murders. So just to add to that so Tamilan didn't only know
3: one of them he apparently was like best mates with with one of the guys he didn't approve of his lifestyle and his lifestyle choices and apparently went to his boxing gym the following day and the trainer said you know sorry to hear about your friend he's like well if you if you're in that line, if you're if you're in that world dealing drugs, then bad things are gonna to happen to you. Apparently he said it very mm-hmm. stony faced. And apparently, you know, it's someone he's supposedly close to, been close to for years. So um yeah, it just goes to show something that's definitely switched in his head.
4: Yeah, well, it feeds in as well to some of the conspiracy theories, which we'll get onto in the aftermath. But uh, yeah, this this is is quite a key moment. At the same time, the government argued that Johar's crimes warranted the death penalty. Johar's mitigation theory centred around the idea that Tamerlan was the mastermind behind the bombing. And according to Johar, he was not sufficiently culpable to warrant the death penalty because his older brother had pressured him to participate. I mean, there are other things I've read online that that claim that that Johar essentially said, look, my brother had a gun to my head. This, This is why I did it. Um, and it's very, it, it does seem to be very split in terms of people that believe he was just as responsible as his brother or completely under his brother's guise. So,
3: yeah, I mean, some people say that looking at the footage and you see him clearly stand there, very calm and collective, and then he drops the bag off like near, you know, families, young children. And then people also say about the, the footage of him doing CCTV later on in the day, just getting some sandwiches, just doing his normal day, yeah. not seeming
4: affected whatsoever by the attack. Saying that you know he's complicit of what you know he knows what he's doing. Well, them them murdering that police officer and then doing a carjacking as well. Like he just seems very composed and on it. And uh, I I'm on the side that they're equally to blame. Although pro- perhaps Tamerlan would have been slightly more radicalised than. Um, I think Joe Tamerlan Hart.
3: probably t- turned him essentially oh, yeah, but yeah, um, yeah. you know you still have to take responsibility for your own actions um, April 8th 2015 at the end of his sentence and proceeding and without hearing any evidence about the Walton murders eight jurors found that Tamlan had become radicalised before Johar and encouraged Johar to follow his example and after a 13 week trial Johar was found guilty on all 30 counts of the indictment the charges of usage of a weapon of mass destruction resulting in a death in addition to Aiden and abetting made Johar eligible for the death penalty May 15th 2015 Throughout the trial, many witnesses, friends, family members and survivors came forward to testify. Johar remained silent, with his head down throughout, displaying little to no emotion. Family members of the three victims that lost their lives pleaded to the judge for the death penalty. Extremely graphic video and photo evidence were introduced to the court. Before the judge pronounced the sentence, Rebecca Gregory, who lost a leg on the horrific day in April 2013, addressed Johar directly.
0: Terrorists like you do two things in this world. One, they create mass destruction, but the second is quite interesting. Because do you know what mass destruction really does? It brings people together. We are Boston strong and we are America strong. And choosing to mess with us was a terrible idea.
3: Joe Hart made the following statement
0: shortly before the verdict was delivered. I'm sorry for the lies I've taken, for the suffering I've caused you, for the damage I've done, irreparable damage. In case there is any doubt, I'm guilty of this attack along with my brother. So, I mean,
3: the interesting thing there is a lot of people who consider themselves martyrs and doing it for the particular cause, they wouldn't apologize. They'll they yeah. s- they'll say what they've done is, you know, you took in the lives of my people, etc. etc. et, cetera, et cetera. So there's him showing a little bit of them there. Uh, I'm thinking he's just kind of not going the full way of it, trying to get a sentence shortened and trying to survive and not getting death penalty. But yeah, it's slightly different to what you would imagine him to say. I think, um, Johar is sentenced to death by lethal injection for his role in the Boston Marathon bombings. According to the verdict, forms completed by the jurors, three of twelve believe that Johar had taken part in the attack under his brother's influence. Two believed that he had been remorseful for his actions. Two believed that Tamerlan, not Johar, had shot and killed Officer Collier. Three believed that his friends still care about him. Weird one. I know, yeah. One believed that Sanaya's mother, Zudad Sanaev, was to be blamed for the brother's actions. One believed that Johar would never be violent again in prison. So, so, yeah, it's a lot of conflicting uh, emotions and thoughts towards the mayor. Mm. Um, but, yeah, still still ended up with him being uh, given the death penalty.
4: So that was the timeline for the Boston Marathon bombings. Uh, we're now going to move on to a bit of aftermath as well as some of the uh, conspiracy.
3: Hold up. <laughs> Hold up. Well, whoa, whoa,
4: whoa, whoa. whoa, whoa. Uh, Ooh, We nearly really
3: missed a key thing out here. The aftermath. No, 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 <laughs> no, no, no. I thought, obviously, uh, in this case is around a marathon. I think marathon, always been interested in, you know, long-distance things, things pushing you to the edge of what, what, what humans are possible. It, you know, this is obviously what shows you what, what the, the dark things humans can do, but it's also nice that it's something inspiring that people and humans can do. So, uh, let's throw it to TTs.
4: Tommy's trivia! <laughs> That's terrific! TTs out.
3: That's disgusting crap. So, uh, Tommy's Trivia tackles the toughest <laughs> today. Um, and I'm basically going to go through three different marathons that, particularly, I find fascinating. Um, I, find, I find, you know, if you, if you can do it, I find it's terrific. <laughs> Take that much for free. So, um, I'm going to start off with Marathon de That's how they say it Marathon de a uh, French for the Marathon of Sands, or MDS for short, if you want to go for short It's roughly a 250 kilometer journey, and it's seven days in the hot sands of the Sahara Desert
4: wow
3: why'd people sign up to do that 7 days running in the Sahara Desert it's fully self-supported meaning there are no race crews and you have to carry your own supplies again just I struggle on a hot day in England I was going to say I I get really flustered
4: a little bit dehydrated does me in
3: so you spend the night in the communal goat's hair uh, berber tents with no side protecting you from the desert winds so again in the night you're going to get a shit night's sleep so the heat is so hot it gets to 50 degrees celsius uh, 122 degrees fahrenheit for other for um, our, uh, other american listeners but yes yeah, so that heat again uh, combining the distance the sand the heat the wind and the weight of carrying your own supplies the mds is undoubtedly one of the toughest foot races in the world so that one i was like that is staggering there's one that i've got particular fondness for uh, only because i stumbled across a little documentary called the barclay marathons I made you force either of you to watch a documentary about that before? Oh, the Barclay Marathons. The Barclay. So it's basically, it's a real character runs it. So the Barclay Marathons is arguably one of the hardest ultramarathons in existence, uh, mainly down to the fact that it's so... And he's kooky, but disorganised, uh, but, but on purpose. For example, no one knows the exact distance or even the start time. So people are camping at the campsites. They don't know when they're going to start, but then a horn plays. Or I think it's one of actually a shell. Goes, woo and then they all start running, so they don't know when that's going to happen. It could happen three in the morning, it could happen whenever. Um, so you don't know when to start eating. I think you get, I think you get a warning, of five-hour like warning from the, the horn, so you have to eat, start eating foods and preparing yourself. Um, even figuring out how to apply is, is really hard and difficult. And like they don't do like cash buy-ins. You often have to do. One year he just accepted like white dress shirts. Everyone had to bring a white shirt which is very odd uh, takes place in rural east tennessee and it involves running five loops of anywhere between 20 or 26 miles um, mm-hmm. of unclear trials cut through um patches of like it's like thorny patches and brambles and things like that and you end up getting really cut up which is obviously horrible it's throughout the night as well um and you go yeah, you go through a, a sewage pipe thing which you can run through and then you go to the really big hills and you start going to, doing the reverse loop as well. And to prove that you've been to separate checkpoints, there's actually books to against trees, and you have to rip a certain page of the book out to prove that you've been to each checkpoint. Wow. It is on there's a documentary about it, but um Barkley Barefans highly recommend it. Uh, it's very interesting. Um it regularly ends with no finishes, and since 1986 there have only been 15 Barkley finishes. Which are, wow. that's a particular one that I
4: just find really interesting. So I was keen on it um for one part only, and that was that it starts by the blowing of a conch
3: and if people if people tap out they, they play a little brass like the death march <laughs> <laughs> it's
4: great honestly that's it's cool. such, i'm gonna check it out really
3: good documentary the guys are a right little character but uh, there's two documentaries there's one that was on netflix which is better than the one that's on youtube but and the last one is a jungle marathon which again i just the idea of sticky bugs and all that not for me so while the others um, are extremely dangerous terrain and weather the jungle marathon offers the threat of life threatening wildlife so you've got a 200 kilometer race which includes swamps snakes mosquitoes leeches crocodiles jaguars howler monkeys spiders scorpions wasps and you know many many other things runners have six days to battle through the uh, the jungle terrain on paths only penetrable by boat um and yeah just the heat the humidity all the animals and bugs and everything are everywhere um it's a self-sufficient race so no spies provided runners are often awoken by bites from ants or other creatures Mm. But this jungle marathon Is in is a beautiful place It takes place in Manu National Park Ooh. Runner's experience A breathtaking cloud forest Running the Andes mountains That's the same cloud forest surely Ooh. Surely um, well, I mean, There's different cloud forests
4: Quite a few of them But that
3: Okay Well, well yeah. There you go They stand above the clouds um, In thin air and hard, difficult to breathe in Peering down a massive valley Into a sea of green trees Oh, cool. I did the Barkley at those three but um, they, they're all horrible but yeah I just want some marathons that people do and they decide to do out of their own three free will is interesting to see but that's, that's TT's this week Tommy's Trivia Tackles the Toughest see you <laughs> see you next time Tommy's Trivia <laughs> that's terrific absolutely fantastic well done trivia But yes, sorry, back to the aftermath. Uh, And let's start with a highly controversial one. In August of 2013, just four months after the bombing, Rolling Stone made the questionable decision to put Joe Hart on the front cover of the August issue. Which, baffling. Uh, It was titled The Bomber, how a popular, promising student was failed by his family, fell into radical Islam and became a monster. Um... The magazine, understandably, drew heavy criticism uh, for the fluttering photo of Johar on the issues cover.
4: Yeah, I thought. He, I mean, he does. He he does look a bit like a rock star on the front of that cover. So I can completely understand why why people got annoyed. For he could easily have been a member of the Kooks or the Hives, just an indie band. It looks a little bit like a could be John Lennon's son. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. That's, that's fair. That's fair. Thank you. On the Rolling Stone cover issue, Massachusetts State Police Sergeant Sean Murphy said.
0: Glamorising the face of terror is not just insulting to the family members of those killed in the line of duty, it could also be an incentive to those who may be unstable to do something to get their face on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine. You don't reward a terrorist with celebrity treatment
4: which is, yet yeah, a completely valid argument there. The editors of Rolling Stone posted the following response. They also tried to say, well, the New York Times used the same photo, but they definitely used it in different context to how uh, Rolling Stone presented that image.
3: Well, the Rolling Stone as well, they put people on the front cover who are rock stars. Mm-hmm. The New York Times put together, put on the front cover the main story. It's a completely different context, isn't it? Mm. Sorry to disagree, Ben. But-
4: <laughs> no, I, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly, actually. But yeah, the the editors of The Rolling Stone posted the following response.
0: Our hearts go out to the victims of the Boston Marathon bombing, and our thoughts are always with them and their families. The cover story we are publishing this week falls within the traditions of journalism and Rolling Stone's long-standing commitment to serious and thoughtful coverage of the most important political and cultural issues of our day. The fact that Johar Sanaev is young and in the same age group as many of our readers makes it all the more important for us to examine the complexities of this issue and gain a more complete understanding of how a tragedy like this happens.
3: I think if they were to put it in the middle article, just don't put it the front cover. Mm. You'd be fine. It's just they're using that to sell magazines. Organisers of the London Marathon, which was held just six days after the Boston bombing, reviewed security arrangements for their event. Hundreds of extra police officers were drafted in to provide a greater presence on the streets, and a record 700,000 spectators lined the streets. Runners in London observed a 30-second silence in respect for the victims of Boston shortly before the race began, and many runners wore black ribbons on their vests. Organisers also pledged to donate $3 to a fund for Boston Marathon victims
4: for every person who finished the race. So now we'll move on to a few of the conspiracies. There aren't that many, to be fair, but some of them are... Well, well, this first one in particular is absolutely horrific. So politician Stella Tremblay, who was a member of the New Hampshire House of Representatives, claimed that the Boston Marathon bombing was a government conspiracy and that victims who lost their legs were faking it and faking their injuries because they were, quote, not screaming in agony. Uh, yeah, imagine that a politician saying it as well.
3: It really makes you worry who people get, get voted in.
4: Absolutely. So under huge pressure after the backlash these comments received, she, uh, understandably...
0: She's got a good point, though. I'm joking, obviously.
4: (laughs) (laughs) So under huge pressure after the backlash that these comments uh, understandably received, she resigned. There are some online communities that believe the bombings were false flag attacks by the American government on the American people and many of these people feel uh, exactly the same way about the 9-11 attacks. The Sanaev brother's uncle, uh, Syed Hussein Sanaev, and other members of the Sanaev family have repeated this theory, as well as claiming that neither brother actually committed the attacks. Another leading theory is that the American government had intimate knowledge that the attacks were going to happen, but did nothing about it and perhaps even encouraged it. So one claim made by Joe Harsinayev's defence attorney, as well as also made by some journalists, was that the FBI had tried to recruit Tamerlan Sanaev as an FBI informant in 2011. And this all kind of circles around that triple murder uh, in Massachusetts. The failure of the 2011 Waltham triple murders investigation to identify Tamerlan Sinayev as a major suspect led to claims amongst conspiracy theorists that the investigation had been suppressed intentionally by the FBI. And essentially... They suppressed the investigation, they kept this case very, very close-knit because they used it to um, essentially get Tamerlan signed up as an informant. They knew that he had been to some highly conflictual parts of Russia um, where there was a great al-Qaeda presence and essentially wanted to sign him up as an informant for the FBI. And apparently the FBI, according to these conspiracy theorists, commonly practice encouraging confidential informants to attempt terrorist attacks um, which I've, I've not heard of that one before I don't know the I don't see too many benefits from it um, unless I'm just looking at it at one level um, but yeah really really bizarre one so as I said there's not a ton of conspiracy theorists but I did find uh, his current status and the uh, facility he's locked up in to be to be very interesting he's locked up with some some uh, notable figures Joe Haar has been locked up for more than
3: eight years at the time of recording. He is housed on death row at the Supermax ADX Florence Prison, which is also known as the Alcatraz of the Rockies. Which is a cool name, isn't it? That sounds
4: cool, not it? Give it less of a cool name. Yeah, first the Rolling Stone cover, and now he's at the bloody Alcatraz of the Rockies, or the Rocky Stars. Call it the, the Stinky Bin. Yeah.
3: Oh, yeah, he's in the Stinky Bin for life. That's The Alcatraz of the Rockies. Too cool. <laughs> Here, the inmates are confined for most part of the day in single cells, with facilities made of poured, reinforced concrete to deter self-harm. Not like that crumbly concrete we have over in the UK, guys. (laughs) Topical. And and under 24-hour supervision, carried out intensively with high staff inmate ratios. He is serving his sentence here rather than the mainstream prison due to, quote, unique security management requirements. Or as I like to say, USMR. Um other notable inmates include numerous members of al-qaeda who were involved in the planning of the 9-11 attacks ramzi yusuf one of the main perpetrators of the 1993 world trade center bombing right-hand man of Osama bin Laden, abu hamza al-mazari um for our, for our english listeners um he was quite well known in the press over here uh, he was the one who had a, a a hook for a hand he'd often be at the um, speaker's corner i believe yeah and basically preaching hate um but yes he's over there now a whole bunch of advisors or former advisors to Osama Bin Laden the Times Square bomber Akeda Ula Terry Nichols co-conspirator of the Oklahoma City bombings, James Marcello the front boss of the mafia group known as the Chicago Outfit Oh, Ben.
4: yeah
3: used to be the band called the Chicago Outfit didn't you man yeah I think there are about 50 bands called the Chicago Outfit now though so. and you are the 48th
4: so I still like <laughs> and last but not least El Chapo El Chapo that's, that's sort of that's a big name Big name uh, prisoner, isn't it? El Chapo. It's escaped a few times from what I recall. El Chapo did flow. I did also see, when I was looking at the list of no- notable inmates, Dwight York, but it's it's, it's not that Dwight York. Uh, different Dwight York. Johar's parents, who have since divorced, continue to proclaim their son's innocence, particularly the boy's mother, who is quoted as saying, America took my kids away from me. I'm sure my kids were not involved in anything. Hmm. Yeah. The dad seems to be like, yeah, you know. A little bit more level-headed. Yeah, he's like, take responsibility for what you've done. But the mum's like, well, not my kids. In 2016, Al-Qaeda issued a very public threat to America, promising that there would be the swiftest and most fatal of consequences should Johar be harmed in prison. This threat was made by Al-Qaeda's then leader, Ayman al-Zawahiri, who has since been killed in 2022 by the CIA. After his sentencing, Johar has launched a series of different appeals, including that he felt the trial should not have been held in Boston due to local bias. Also including errors in jury selection, the improper exclusion of evidence, which included the triple murder that we discussed, which I was surprised that that wasn't allowed to be admitted into, into evidence, yeah. um, especially especially with his brother's association so closely to that to that case, and also a lack of disclosure. And shockingly, some of these appeals actually worked, the death penalty was briefly lifted from Johar in 2020, only to be later reinstated in 2022, um, which was last year at the time of recording. And I can't believe, unless I'm being ignorant, I didn't hear anything about his death penalty being rev- um, revoked or reinstated in the news. I've not heard anything about that. I do think after the main thing happens
3: over here, we just don't hear much more about it, do we? It mm-hmm. Tends to be. Yeah, that's true. I've been that's saying true. that I thought he was under a trampoline. <laughs> <laughs> fuck it? I don't
4: know what. <laughs> so yeah, he's, he's had his death penalty reinstated with US Circuit Judge Thompson stating
0: Make no mistake, Joe Ha will spend his remaining days locked up in prison with the only matter remaining being whether he will die by execution
3: The 10th anniversary was this year, 2023 and the State of Massachusetts Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco made the following statements about the 10th anniversary of the Boston Marathon
0: bombings We remember the innocent lives lost and the many survivors who were injured in a senseless act of terrorism. We also remember their loved ones whose lives were forever changed that day. And we honor the dedication and the heroism of the first responders whose swift actions saved many. 10 years ago, we saw the very worst in the actions of two terrorists, but we also saw the very best in the resilience of a great city and in the actions of the law enforcement officers, medical professionals, and bystanders who acted heroically in the wake of the attack. Their strength and resilience shows the world the true meaning of Boston Strong. This day and every day, the professionals of the Department of Justice honour the memory of victims of terrorism by working tirelessly to prevent terrorist acts and by holding those who commit them accountable.
4: Boston Police Department officer Dennis Simmons sadly died on April 10th of 2014 and he died as a result of head injuries that he had received during the Watertown shootout a year before, uh, which essentially meant that five people have now died from the result of Johar and Tamalans crimes. American Manhunt, the Boston Marathon Bombing, a Netflix series, was released on April 12th, 2023, which was actually three days before the 10th anniversary of the bombing. And yeah, that has some uh, interviews and some footage, some of which we've used in this episode, but uh, it is a very interesting watch. Um, mm, and it tells you a lot more about the Manhunt, obviously the clue is in the name, but it tells you a lot about the aftermath and... Um, the pursuing of the suspects which is really really interesting Uh, there was also a 2016 movie uh, Patriot's Day starring Mark Wahlberg which was based on the book Boston Strong Wahlberg plays fictional Boston Police Department Sergeant Tommy Saunders uh, and it has got 7.3 out of 10 on IMDb 80% 80% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes and 4.6 out of 5 on Amazon. So it's It's, it's holding up. It's holding up yeah, pretty good.
3: I, I, my cousin recommended that so I will give that a watch but yeah, it's good. good good reviews there but uh, yes uh, that is the case of the boston marathon um yes it's a big big case um and one i didn't realize was as close to home as as it was um i didn't realize that dan's sister was there luckily she got away unharmed from the event but obviously a, a very traumatic event um and yes next week we'll be back with another huge case i don't know if uh, if ben has a, has a clue for the next one
4: uh unfortunately i'm not going to have a cryptic clue for this week because it really will give it away i i tested it and the boys got it you know they got it straight away and they knew <laughs> we'll tell you what they could clue was that ben didn't go
3: with um in yeah. the episode yeah next week next one yeah
4: yeah but it's a it's a big one it's an exciting one
3: it is yeah it's one that i, th- I think has been has uh, been requested a bunch of times and it's one that i'm happy i'm eager to look into ben
4: yeah absolutely absolutely and if you just can't wait until next week's episode we've got what have we got now three that magic number episodes remaining of series eight um one of which will be the audience vote which is currently happening but it'll be done by the time you hear this so don't panic about it but it... yeah relax a little relax, relax a little a while. Yeah, sure, take a load off. But we have two other very big cases coming as well as the audience vote. If you just can't wait until then, at the time of recording, we've got 130 exclusive episodes over on icmap.co.uk, um, which are available in video and audio platforms. You can pop our private RSS feed in your ears and take us anywhere. Download them and go for a picnic. Um, so... Pop us in your private parts. Absolutely, absolutely. Go on. And we also... <laughs> Rub it first. Absolutely, and we also have our side podcast, which is AI Karumba, uh, and our exclusive episodes are hosted there as well, so there's loads of goodies, um, we do monthly live streams, early access to uh, main channel episodes, uh, and you also get exclusive access to merch as well as merch discounts, so a little bit And over the, the hill, there. there's new merch coming. There is. Mm. I can't give you an exact date, but I can promise you it's pretty much here.
0: Very exciting.
4: Oh, well, maybe you should buy one of the things. Okay. Thank you so much. And other than that, if you are listening to the episode, please feel free to give us a, a rating. It really does help us. We'd love five stars. I'll just say it now. We would love five stars. It would make. probably nurse me back to full health at a five-star review. I'm week. still going to buy that. Or if you don't want me to get better, five-star review would also sort of counter the the recovery.
3: I think maybe a few two stars in there just to keep Ben humble. No, 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 don't do
4: that to me. But yeah, a five star review would be greatly appreciated. Stick us in your social media, share us with your friends, tell people about us. Um, we would love, we would love to, to hear, um, we would love to hear about you telling other people about us. We would love that. Right guys.
3: Yeah. Ben's not convoluted this week. Um, yes. Thank you guys for listening. Um, we'll be back again next week with a new case. We look forward to sharing the case with you then. Um, and thank you so much for all your support. It's very much appreciated. And like we always say, we
4: say this all the time. Keep doing what you're doing. Well, unless it's not Unless it's forgetting every
3: time to do, Dan to pick the winner of the Oh thing, goodness! we forget oh, every time.
0: Goodness gracious me, you are correct. Um, Can you remember that- what Ben's was? Yep. <laughs> No, um, Ben's one uh, perked up beans. my ears because it was about Boston, obviously, and I, and I li- and I like learning about Boston. Um, yours, beans. Tom, was also very interesting. So it's very difficult um, this week. Give,
4: give it a Ben, fuck it.
0: Um, I think, it yeah, yeah, Ben, you've got it. Well done.
4: Oh, I was ready for a point each. No,
0: no, you had that last week. But
4: I'll take it. No, I'll take it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I am going to try and get hold of some molasses, and we'll do some Boston beans. We'll have a Boston bean party together.
0: No need. I'll, I'll i'll
4: i'll watch um we will see you next week guys thank you so much unless it's not memorializing your uh your your, your vehicle tracking number that's crazy
3: yeah good work yeah yeah good uh, yeah good on him yeah guys sorry uh, like we always say uh keep doing what you did. see ya bye to pip take care bye
1: Hey Prime members, you can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today.
0: I Murder Murderer Podcast is proudly part of the Acast Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content along with our private Discord server and live q as exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk.